Good morning, Gold Avenue Church family. This morning we're moving on in our Go and Make Disciples sermon series. And for the last several weeks, I think it's been about five weeks, we've been working through sin. And friends, this morning we are turning a corner. But before we do, I do just want to encourage you. If you have not yet listened to or really chewed on these last five sermons about sin, Please go back and listen to them before you move forward. Sin is not a particularly fun subject to work through, I know, but just as light is so much more profound when it shines in the darkness, the goodness of salvation, the goodness of Jesus cannot be fully tasted until we come to understand the depths from which we have been saved. Understanding sin is crucial to understanding the absolute goodness of the gospel. And so with that, this morning we are turning the corner and we are moving into the promise of restoration. We'll be working from thought unit 10 of the gospel tool and I'll be reading from Colossians 2, 6 to 15 and then the sermon will have other pieces of scripture sprinkled into it. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just sang a song about turning our eyes to you. So Lord, as we turn to your word, we do ask that you would shift our eyes up to your face that looks down at each one of us with love. Lord, lift our eyes to see the gift of the cross and your sacrifice on it. Lift our eyes and help us to recognize that you are our prize. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it tells us about you, about who you are. And as we dig into it this morning, we pray that you would equip and anoint the preaching of your word. Lord, would you equip and anoint us to receive it, not just in our minds or in our heads, but deep in our spirits and our inner being. And Lord, would you bless us with courage to live as those who know the power of your restoration? In Jesus' precious name, amen. So from the Gospel Tool Thought Unit 10, the promise of restoration. Yet, God does not leave us to ourselves. From the moment that sin enters the world, God is merciful, promising and working for restoration. Even as God is candid with our first parents about the consequences of their rebellion, he graciously promises a deliverer to eventually crush Satan and all that sin has unleashed. And then from Colossians 2, 6 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, 
which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity that is God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the good word of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. In the 1994 film Forrest Gump, it tells the story of the fascinating life of a man from Alabama named, as the title tells us, Forrest Gump. Forrest is born in the 1940s, and as his life sweeps across the 20th century, it's speckled with key people and events within American history, including the Vietnam War. Forrest enlists in the United States Army in 1967, and he quickly finds himself patrolling the dangerous jungles of Vietnam under the leadership of the impossibly salty and angry Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan's time in Vietnam is cut short with a violent ambush and attack in which many of his men are lost. Forrest ends up rescuing Lieutenant Dan, but he's lost both of his legs from the knees down, and he is more angry and salty and bitter than ever before. Years later, Forrest reunites with his lieutenant on New Year's Eve 1972, and as the two ring in the new year together, it becomes clear that Lieutenant Dan is an angry, alcoholic man who desperately wishes that Forrest had left him to die in the jungle. Have you found Jesus yet? Lieutenant Dan asks Forrest from a drunken stupor. I wasn't aware that he was missing, Forrest responds. That's what all these cripples down at the VA talk about, Lieutenant Dan says. Jesus this and Jesus that. They even had a priest come and talk to me, he says. They told me God is listening and that if I found Jesus, I would get to walk beside him in heaven. Did you hear what I said, Lieutenant Dan rages? Walk beside God in the kingdom of heaven. To this bitter and broken man who has seen so much violence and has experienced so much pain. Jesus seems powerless, irrelevant, impossible.
His life is too dark and his body is too broken for the words and the promises of Jesus to hold any water. It's an extreme reaction and it's a heartbreaking one to watch. But if we're honest, I think that many of us have had moments where somewhere, somehow, we can relate. Moments where the brokenness around us is just too much. It's broken beyond repair. We understand and believe that Jesus might fix it all at the end when he comes again. But what can possibly be done now? These last several weeks, we've been doing the hard and the painful work of unpacking sin throughout our sermons. We looked at the rebellion of Adam and Eve and how it plunged the whole earth and all of creation into chaos and destruction, how everything is shackled and bent towards death. We looked at the effects of sin on us individually and how it can be so hard to believe that we are loved by God. This concept of the orphan spirit that causes us to strive for value and worth apart from God and how sin causes this overwhelming sense of rejection, shame and unworthiness that follows us around like a dark cloud. We looked at Joseph and his brothers and how that same orphan spirit impacts our relationships how it bears the fruit of pride and comparison, judgment, criticism, deception, and even murder. In the last couple of weeks, we learned that the consequences of sin are sometimes bondage to spiritual enemies and that the fruit of sin is complete and utter stuckness. Like Pastor Gina's little blue Camry dragging through the mud from her her story last week. We've been trudging through the mud of sin. And it's been sticky. And maybe even overwhelming to consider. And just as it did for Lieutenant Dan, all this sin and all this brokenness begs the question. What? can Jesus possibly do about it all? What can be done about orphanhood, depression, poverty, sickness, broken hearts, broken relationships, racism, sexism, addiction, violence, war, abuse, disease, confusion, and chaos? How will we ever get unstuck from the muck field that is this sinful world? And is it even possible to get unstuck on this side of heaven? When we started talking about sin a few weeks ago, we began where sin itself began. In the Garden of Eden and in Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God had told them not to, all of creation became shackled. Their rebellion had consequences that just could not be undone. God finds Adam and Eve cowering behind fig leaves. And like a disappointed but loving parent, he begins to clearly lay out the consequences of their actions. God does not want his children to be surprised. He lays out exactly what life will look like from here on out. 
Adam and Eve will have to work hard and life is going to hurt. Relationships will be strained and life will be riddled with pain and difficulty. No longer will Adam and Eve walk with their father in paradise in the cool of the day. God turns to the serpent who had led Adam and Eve to their destruction. And he says this curious thing. From Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity. It's like perpetual hostility or conflict. I will put perpetual conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that is the offspring of humanity, will crush your head. And you, that's the serpent, will strike his heel. It sounds ominous. But don't miss the note of hope that God has just played into creation. Listen, God says, there's going to be perpetual conflict between humans and Satan. The enemy will continue to strike at your heel, but humanity will crush the head of the serpent. This is a perpetual cycle. The enemy strikes, humanity crushes. The enemy strikes, humanity crushes. Just seconds after God addresses his children's rebellion and its bitter consequences, he already promises victory. God assures his children that they will have the power to crush the enemy's head and that he will eventually be conquered once and for all. A human can survive a bite on the heel. You can clean a wound and you can bind it up. But a snake cannot survive a crushed head. This isn't just an ominous pronouncement of judgment. God is preparing his people for the natural consequences of their actions. And he is promising that he will deal with their enemy and that he will restore everything that has been or will be lost. So for hundreds of years, the offspring of Adam and Eve live under the consequences of their sins, like zombies under the grip of death, like Pastor Gina talked about last week. But they watch and they wait for the coming of their deliverer. They watch and they wait for God to restore Everything that's been lost. And then, one night, a virgin gives birth to the Son of God. And as the Christmas song put it, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus the deliverer of the world, the one who would crush the head of the serpent once and for all, had been born. Jesus was a humble and a sinless man. He was normal. He ate and he slept and he laughed and he cried and Jesus spent his life teaching and loving. But he was also fully human and fully divine. He was fully aware of the weight of the curse in the world around him. 
He was fully aware that his blood alone would pay the price for the sins of Adam and Eve, for the sin of every human from the beginning to the end, every sin that was and is to come. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, accused, abused, and eventually hung on a cross to die, a perfect, spotless lamb whose blood would cover over the sin of the world. Jesus' blood paid the price of death, and in doing so, he made us alive with him. Jesus' death brought us back to life, and after he was resurrected, he sent his very spirit to dwell within us, to once again walk with us in the cool of the day, and to bear the power of the victory of the cross within our very souls and the spheres over which we hold influence. And as we read in the Apostle Paul's letters to the Colossians earlier, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus made us alive. He paid the debt of our sins and canceled it, null and void. He joined himself, his love, his victory, his power, all of it living, him, Jesus, living in us. And he made a public spectacle spectacle of our enemy. Those spiritual powers and authorities that Satan has dispatched to hold us captive. They've lost their power. As one commentator put it, in this picture, Christ is the conquering general and the powers and authorities are the vanquished enemy displayed as the spoils of battle before the entire universe. It's no wonder that scripture tells us that the earth shook and the tombs cracked open when Jesus died. The curse was broken. And after centuries of heel strikes and bloody heels, the head of the serpent had been crushed. Just in case we had any questions about what was accomplished at the cross and the weight of what Jesus did up there, in Paul's letter to the Church of Rome, as Paul encourages and celebrates the faithful believers in Rome, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Jesus crushed Satan under his feet at the cross. And yet somehow, by his grace... He is in the process of putting Satan under our feet, too. And eventually, our enemy will be completely crushed. Though we won't see the complete victory until Jesus ushers in the new creation at his return, as we share in his victory living in us, and as we rule over our enemy just as Adam and Eve were supposed to in the garden, that serpent loses his grip on us and on this world. 
So what does that really mean? What does that practically look like? If you remember, Satan's goal in the garden was to separate God from his people, from the loving relationship between a father and his children. And so Jesus' promise of restoration means that when the enemy strikes, when he works hard to convince us that we are too sinful for God's love, that we're rejected, unworthy, unlovable, we can sideswipe that strike with the truth. The truth that all our sins are paid for, that shame is not our yoke or mantle, that God loved us enough to send his son to pay our debt. We have not been rejected. We have been joined together with God himself already. And one day we will walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Satan also sought to bring disunity and chaos within human relationships. The promise of restoration means that when someone hurts us, Jesus will deal with them with justice. It means that when Satan tries to bait us into comparing or criticizing, we can sideswipe that strike by remembering that Jesus made a way for and modeled forgiveness. That we each bear his identity and his presence, that we each have purpose, that we are each loved desperately and made uniquely for purpose. We are the apple of our Papa's eye. We do not need to strive for attention or significance. Satan tried to undo purpose for Adam and Eve. He robbed them in the garden. He robbed them of the garden and their job to rule over it. But because of Jesus, his promise of restoration means that our role on this earth is being restored. We can speak his peace into our chaos. We can exercise authority over our time, our money, our energy, our thoughts, our focus, our relationships, the work of our hands. We can choose to trust and have faith when the world demands our fear. We can choose forgiveness when our enemy baits us into anger. We have authority over our feelings, our emotions, and our instincts because of Jesus. Satan also tried to twist the words of God. He tried to rob Adam and Eve of the security and the foundation of truth. And as the promise of restoration comes to us, it means that the very spirit of truth now lives in us. If we are ever confused about who we are, who our God is, what is right, what is wrong, or what our purpose is, for those who are in Christ, there is a still small voice living within us, bearing witness to the word of God that scripture tells us will guide us in all truth. The promise of restoration means that truth is being restored. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dave blessed us with a sermon about how sin positions us for spiritual oppression from the demonic. For some of us, that message may have shifted our worldview a little bit, and it may have been a little scary to consider. But friends, 
Jesus' death on the cross and his promise of restoration means that the legal debt that allows for spiritual oppression has been canceled. As Pastor Dave shared with us, we've seen countless people in prayer ministry set free from spiritual oppression. No longer are they bound by shame, fear, criticism, doubt, deception, self-hatred, comparison, lust, rage, and so many other spirits of oppression. The promise of restoration is the promise of deliverance from our enemies. It's why Jesus taught us to pray for it. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be crushed for our sins and iniquities and that by his wounds, we would be healed. Not all physical sickness or brokenness is connected to spiritual wounding or oppression. It's not all necessarily undone by dealing with sin. But Jesus did cause the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the blind to see on this side of heaven. And Jesus' promise of restoration means that sometimes there is healing. Backs straightened. Legs grown out. Cancer melted. Wombs restored. Pain evaporated. Because of Jesus. And what is not healed on this earth will be in the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of restoration and the good news of Jesus Christ is this. Restored identity. Restored relationship. Restored purpose. Healing. Deliverance. Freedom. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Gentleness. Faithfulness. And self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. The promise of restoration is the promise that all that has been lost will one day be restored. Every single thing that has been broken, bent, or twisted will be fixed. And it's all happening right now, taking place day by day, one wound, one crack, one relationship at a time, as we share in the profound victory of Jesus Christ and him living within us. Jesus isn't powerless. He's not some irrelevant moot point. Jesus is the king of the universe who is in the process of putting every single one of our enemies under our feet and restoring every single thing that went wrong as we cooperate with him. So friends, this week, I want to invite you to revel in the goodness of our Savior. And as you consider the profound sacrifice of Jesus and the restoration that it promises and is providing, may you be blessed to taste and see the goodness of our God and his work of restoration within and around you. Amen.